0: And now this morning, we come to the, the high point in our service, the time in which we open the Bible, God's very Word, and He speaks to us. So let's come now expectant that He will meet us according to His grace and do just that. Please turn into, into your Bibles or in your devices, Bible app of choice. If you don't have any of those things, there's Bibles underneath the uh, what is that? Is that the center chair? I always mess this up. It's close to the middle of the room. There's a Bible on the floor. You can grab it if you don't have one. <laughs> I need to get that down. But we're going to be reading Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. We'll be reading from verse 26 through verse 42 together this morning. Si habla espanol, abran sus Biblias, Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 14, versículo 26 a 42. Jesús en Gethsemane. Now, Jesus, he's marching toward the cross. Every Sunday sermon from here on out is another step closer. The mere hours before his body would be broken and his blood would be spilt are shrinking by the moment. It's after the supper on Thursday evening of that holy week, and we pick up with Jesus and the 11 remaining apostles. In the gospel accounts, they tell us, they make it clear that Judas had taken his leave before the Lord's Supper uh, was received that evening, before it was complete. And now, after Jesus and his friends finished their meal, a meal which represented the redemption that he was about to accomplish, they came to the Garden of Gethsemane. Since chapter 14 has begun, church, the whole narrative, the whole story, has been about preparing for the death of Christ. His opponents and his betrayers have conspired together. Mary has anointed his body for burial. And Jesus himself, he gave his friends a meal to help them understand what was about to take place. Now, Jesus prepares himself. So let's behold the Savior in the garden. As we read God's word together this morning, beginning in verse 26, we'll read the entire section and pray. Mark writes. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come now to behold you, and we ask your God and Father, who by your grace is our God and Father, to fill us with your Spirit, that we might see you, that we might behold you, that we might glorify you this morning as we come to terms with, as we come face to face with, as we try to wrap our minds around just what you endured to take away our sins from us. We pray that you would tell us about who we are and tell us about what you have done to bring us back to God. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help us. Let your word go forth with power, with conviction, and would you bless the reading, the preaching, and the believing of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, man. This text is holy ground. And all week long, I've been trembling and and wrestling as I've tread upon it, preparing for this moment. And not only are there so very many profound implications we could just tether things out in what we've just read. But even more, there are some features of this passage that are so profound that we actually fail to fully and adequately understand them. This is for us, but it's also just beyond us to grasp the depth and the magnitude and the gravity of what is contained here in God's Word. But here's my burden for us this morning. Here's my burden for us today. Two things that we just might be able to wrap our minds around and to understand as we consider the Savior in the garden. Two ideas that will guide our time together as we follow Jesus into the garden this morning. Number one, before this text is about Jesus sympathizing with us in our suffering or in our loneliness it's actually first and foremost about the reality that we cannot sympathize with the depths of sadness and suffering that he endured. And listen, that we cannot sympathize with him is actually the very basis of the good news that he sympathizes with us. But before we get there, we need to do our best to see him, to consider the uniqueness of his sorrow and the uniqueness of his experience of what is a perfect human weakness. That's number one. Number two, long, long before this text is about us taking Jesus' prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will, long before it's about us taking that prayer and making it our own, we need to square with the reality that it was Jesus' prayer because it was not our own. Listen, before encouraging the fathers of Cross of Grace on this Father's Day to be just as committed to righteousness as they lead their homes as God the Father was, right, in establishing His justice upon the cross, before encouraging us as sons and daughters uh, to obey or as adults, right, to honor our earthly fathers, just as Christ submitted Himself to the Father's will to honor Him. Before this text is taken to mean anything like obey more, (laughs) take righteousness seriously, Submit to God's will even if it's hard. We need to understand this. That Jesus prays in the garden, let your will be done because we have lived lives proclaiming my will is the way. That's been our proclamation in our lives. Here he is, the son of God, submitting to God for the very reason that we had all lived lives rebelling against God. Church, Jesus is in the garden obeying because we've disobeyed God. Jesus is in the garden obeying, submitting, honoring his Father's will precisely because we did not do that. That's the whole point of the text this morning. We cannot miss that before we move on to application. Ever since Adam Man has failed in the garden. That first man, back at the beginning, he failed to keep watch, right, as we heard back in his day, and he let the serpent come in and have his way. The disciples, we read, they laid down asleep as their Savior was laid low in sorrow, and that serpent filled betrayer, Judas, came marching and slithering up the hill. And every single one of us has failed to keep watch in our own lives. And we have, through this disobedience, we have forfeited the garden. That is, life with God in his presence forever. We have lost this, we have forfeited, forfeited this through our disobedience to his will. So, let's be clear this morning. <laughs> this text today is not about us modeling Jesus' obedience. It's about what we deserved for our disobedience, and what Jesus did to bring us back into the garden. That's our focus today. And listen, as we behold Jesus in the garden, what, what happens, what we experience is the curtain being pulled back, as it were, on the terrible reality of just how serious sin is, just how sinful sin is, and just what it will mean for Jesus to bear it away. On the cross. This whore is what Jesus beholds in all its fullness as he falls to the earth in prayer. He stares into the heart of what's to come in the cross that is just hours away from him. And as he does, we are able to look into his heart for us. And so to move on too quickly to application. would be really to domesticate just how dreadful this scene declares our own sin to be. And, listen, to domesticate our sin would also be to domesticate just how amazing the love and grace of Jesus Christ truly is for us. If we downplay the one, we'll downplay the other. But if we can try to come to terms with the one, we'll be freshly compelled to celebrate the other. So this morning, ask yourself, as we dive in to the narrative and as we follow Jesus into the garden, do you understand what your sin deserved? Do you understand what your sin deserved? Wrap your mind around that question. Are you aware of what your Savior beheld as he looked ahead to the cross? Are you aware of what he saw yet? went on marching toward anyway, seeing it exactly as it was. Do you know what he saw when he looked into the depths of the cross? Cross of Grace Church, this morning, let's behold our Savior in the garden. And as we do, the first thing we'll see is that what Jesus bore for us, he bore alone. What Jesus bore for us, he bore alone. He makes his way to the garden as he continues his march to the cross that only he could bear. And we pick up on the scene in verses 26 through 31. And as we read, it's after the Passover meal has concluded. Jesus and his friends have finished the meal. They've sung a song. Now they're headed out toward the Mount of Olives. And the band of Jesus plus the 11, Judas has already left. They go on what's about a 20-minute walk from the city to The garden. And along the way, Christ tells his disciples in verse 27 You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells them that in the fulfillment of this divinely breathed word of God, which cannot be broken, all the disciples would abandon Jesus on the way to the cross. Judas would betray, and all the rest of them would fall away, leaving their teacher, their master, and their friend alone as he faced his impending death. Think about this. The last thing that they would do for Christ before the end of his earthly life would be to let him down. And that's a scary, sobering, and very very saddening prediction from Jesus. He's saying, you will all fall away. And even though there's a glimmer of hope in verse 28, Jesus says, though you will fall away from me, I will come back for you. I will go before you. I'll be waiting in Galilee after I am raised up from the dead. In the next verse, what Peter's grabbing onto (laughs) is the first part. Ignoring the resurrection bit, he responds to Jesus' prediction for the band. And he responds probably the way we'd all like to respond, but we may or may not have the courage to voice in that moment, in that solemn moment. But he says this. He says, hey, Jesus, even though they all will fall away, guess what? I will not. I'm going to stay true, Lord, to you. I won't let you down, Jesus. Even if everyone else leaves and it's just me alone, I will be the last man standing by your side. And as we read in verse uh, 38, Jesus says, The spirit indeed is willing, right? The spirit indeed is willing, but, in his reply, Jesus confirms that the flesh is weak. Moving from the general to the specific, he offers a a personal, prophetic word just for Peter here. And he says, truly I tell you, Peter, in verse 30. Truly I tell you. And this is coming from the one who has done miracles, who has taught with authority, and recently just sent the disciples out to find the man carrying the water to go find the upper room. And it happened, just as he said, according to his word. This one says, truly I say to you, this very night. Before the rooster crows twice, you, Peter, will deny me three times. (laughs) Jesus looked over at Peter, who said, I will die with you. And he says, my friend, you won't even make it through the night. But Peter, being Peter, and (laughs) I think us seeing ourselves in Peter, he can't accept this. And he says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same the rest of the disciples they agree hey what he said for me too we're we're, we're in it to win it we will not leave your side we will not fall away they all vow they'd sooner die with jesus than deny jesus and we're reminded of the question of james and john back in chapter 10 aren't we where they say let us sit at your right and your left when you're in glory lord and he responds to that question that request by saying to James and John then, are you able, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Can you handle, can you bear what I'm about to undertake? The disciples, they all believe they can. They believe they can bear the weight that Jesus is about to find himself under. They, in one way, kind of embody you know, the highest hopes that we'd have for ourselves, right? We will be unfailing friends. We will live and even die for what we believe. We will never deny the Lord. And while their spirits may be willing, and while our spirits may be willing, the flesh will prove to be weak. They will fall away. Verse 50 tells us that as the arrest occurred later on in the chapter, verse 50, read that one, it says, and they all left him and fled. And in between this prediction and the fleeing, as Jesus went to the garden and said, watch and pray, and stay with me. Far from dying with him, they couldn't even stay awake with him. They are not able to bear what he will bear. They are not able to go where he will go. We are not capable of drinking the cup that he drank for us. And this is the point. Only Jesus can bear what is about to come to him in the cross. No sinful human, then or now or ever, is capable, was capable, of drinking the cup that he had to drink. And, listen, he will drink that cup precisely to atone for the failures of his friends. He would be abandoned and unsupported as he bore that dreadful weight alone. And as we think of that, that abandonment, that loneliness, something does connect to us, right? Something does, you know, um, maybe find a soft or tender or sensitive spot in our hearts. I'm sure in this room that we all have our own experiences of abandonment, right, of loneliness, even betrayal in our lives. And the point is that Jesus does sympathize with those. We do have some analogy here, <laughs> but what he experienced is, is far different qualitatively. The, and that, that the one who was abandoned in his case <laughs> was one perfect in love for his own. But listen, we all have our own experiences. I think of a time when I had a falling out with my closest friend. And unless you worry It didn't last long. God was kind to us, and we remain the best of friends to this day, so it has a happy ending. But listen, in that situation, when I had this falling out with my closest friend, unlike Jesus, oh man, I was by no means perfect in love as we walked through this situation. So it's not a perfect analogy, but let's take from this analogy what we can, all right? So here's the story. I used to be, get ready for it, in a rock and roll band. (laughs) Yeah, cue laughter or or something, right? I used to be in a rock and roll band, and (laughs) at that time in my life, I experienced an abandonment that made me feel quite alone, though it's important to know, though truly, I was never alone. So what happened was that my my best friend and the guitarist in our band who also had all of our equipment that we would use to go play live, he quit the band and he planned to move away for college, of all things. and. I felt betrayed, right? I I felt hurt. I felt alone. Here I was, hanging on to this thing that nobody cared about as much as I did. Nobody was in it like me, committed to this going where it ought to go, living our dreams, right? He left me high and dry as I clung to that dream, as I clung to that hope. And so he, he quits the band. But I didn't mention yet that we had committed to play a show, to play a concert that very week that he quit the band. So here I was. Just days away from that show we had committed to with tickets left to sell. Because back, uh, you know, for little bands like we were, you don't just get to show up and play and they expect people will come. You've got to pay to play by selling presale sale tickets so that they can get their money even if nobody comes to see your show. So here we are, it's days away, I have tickets to sell and I would be accountable now to cover the costs of the pre-sale. So here I am, left by my closest friend to deal with this alone. I had to endure the embarrassment of canceling the show and, you know, calling up and apologizing to the the promoter who gave us the opportunity. Sorry, we can't make it. You know, things fell apart, man. (laughs) And I had to own that. I also had to get my way to Anaheim, to the venue, to pay the price and... I couldn't drive. (laughs) I was in high school, I had no license, and here I am under this weight with no means to get to where I ought to go. (laughs) Oh man, so I'm distressed, I'm sad, I'm carrying this burden. But (laughs) here's where things change. Unlike Jesus, who had been abandoned by his friends and even received the silence of his father, in my situation of loneliness, I, I wasn't really alone, right? Even though that one friend was gone, I did have others who actually did come along, give me a drive to the venue, and even helped me to cover some of the costs that I was lacking in paying for the pre-sale value. Christ, on the other hand, he had no friends to accompany him to the venue of the cross. No one came by his side when his closest friends had left it. Well, no one other than enemies. And mockers came around his side as he stepped up to the show. No one contributed to cover any of the cost he would pay to redeem his friends from their debts of sin and failure. He would get there on his own, and he would face the music alone. And so (laughs) I was alone, but I wasn't really alone. We've probably all had experiences where we felt that kind of loneliness and abandonment. But truly, in God's grace and his kindness, we've never been alone. We we would be able to turn and to call out to God, whether we are a believer then or an unbeliever, but calling out to him and saying, Lord, help me. And he would be eager to meet us according to his grace. But here, Jesus is truly alone. Whatever abandonment we've experienced, it, it does pale in comparison to the one who faced the greatest suffering imaginable upon the cross alone. And none of us, as this section tells us, are capable of bearing what he bore. But because of that, he is capable of bearing with us in all of our suffering. For he suffered pains worse than the abandonment and even the pain of physical death that awaited him. And as he enters into the, the heart of the garden and sees what awaits him in the cross, he sees that the, the true depth of that suffering that would come. But because Christ suffered greater than we could ever imagine, greater than we could ever experience, that means that all of our suffering, though no less real, is so much lesser, so much smaller, something that he's able to step into and say, hey, here I am. I've been through worse, and I'll get you through this, because I went through that alone. Because, church, he was alone in his sorrow, we never have to be. And that's good news this morning. So what was the sorrow? What was he getting into that was so unimaginable? And we pick up with the story in verse 32 as they arrive at a place called Gethsemane. And they arrive in Gethsemane, and here, as I mentioned, the resolve of his disciples to go even to the death with him will be put to the test immediately. Let's see if it holds up. <laughs> and we already know it's a test that they'll fail. For far from dying, they can't even stay awake through the night. But Christ coming to Gethsemane, he's preparing himself for what lies ahead, and he leaves his disciples to go and pray leaving some at the entrance of the garden and taking three more, those closest to him, Peter, James, and John's, into the heart of it, as it were, to be with him. He tells those three to watch and wait while he goes to pray. And here, in this moment, Christ goes from being confident and authoritative, you know, as we've seen him. He's talked about his death at the Last Supper, and he said, this is what it will be. I will give my body, I will shed my blood, but I will eat this meal with you again, right, in the new creation, but here now, as he thinks about his death, as he looks toward what's ahead, we begin to see a change in him, don't we? We see now for the first time that he's distressed, that he is greatly troubled, that he is sorrowful even to death, Mark writes. So the question is why? What does the cross mean, right, that he's about to bear? It's that he receives in the garden a foretaste, At this moment of what's to come, that in his humanity, church, listen, Jesus, he knew this was the plan, he knew this was to come, but now in his humanity, he begins to have that curtain pulled back. He begins to see it for what it really is. And what is it that he sees as he looks into the cross? It's this, that what he would bear would be God's wrath. God's wrath toward sin. That is his holy displeasure, his just response and judgment toward our rejection of him, our replacement of him, our living life like it is ours to decide what we will do and what we will be and what we will worship. It is the spurning of his glory that he will not stand for. Christ sees the cross and he understands that the fate that awaits him, the suffering that he will endure, is not just the suffering of physical death, but it is the suffering under God's wrath. The full brunt of what we deserved for our sin this is what the Savior beholds in the garden. Death is coming. The cup of wrath, which is an Old Testament symbol of God's judgment, has been filled up to the brim, and he is now preparing himself to drink it down to the dregs. Having gone away with the three deeper into the garden, he's now descending step by step into the depths of the anguish that awaits him. <sighs> And as he does so, he looks at the outset of this time at his closest friends in the entire world. Imagine this. He looks at his closest friends and he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. He says, Friends, I am sick with sadness over what I am about to face. The horror that awaits me is far worse than death. He looks at them and he says, Would you please, as I go a little further off to pray, Would you just remain here and watch out? Knowing that his hour was drawing near, that his betrayer was soon to come, he asked his friends just to stay up, just to watch his back, just to be there with him so that he can spend time pouring out his heart in prayer to God. And that Jesus does in the garden. Three times, we're told, he goes to the Father and he offers this prayer. Taking his leave of the three, it says in verse 35-36 that he fell to the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Would you remove this cup from me? Using the the Aramaic word for father, which is not a term of, you know, uh, authority, father, sir, but endearment. Like my son calls me dad. He says, Father, my father, all things are possible for you. And because this is true, if it's possible... If there's any other way that you could save, could you do it? (laughs) Is there any other way to complete the mission we have of glorifying the triune God through a rescue of a people for himself, through the defeat of all of his enemies and the restoration of all things to be how you intended them to be? Is there any way we can accomplish this mission apart from me drinking this cup? This is the prayer. Jesus utters. This is the wrestling he is doing in his soul as he contemplates what's ahead of him. Looking down into the contents of that cup. In church, it's not that Jesus is asking for a plan B here. Like, is there any other way, like, you know, that we hadn't thought about? Any any, uh, back to the drawing board we can do here to see if we can figure something else out? It's not that he's suddenly become unclear on his mission. (laughs) He's not doubting, necessarily, right, whether this is truly the right way. He's clear on all this. Yes, it's that according to his human nature, Christ being the God-man, truly God, truly man, he is grieved on one hand, right, and sorrowful in the face of death, in the face of loneliness, in the face of what's to come. We all would be, but it's not just that. Even more than this, and listen, in a way that defies and goes beyond our comprehension, he's grieved at the thought of experiencing anything other than the perfect, holy, and loving union with his God and Father by the Spirit. He is asking, he is pleading, he is begging that he would not have to drink the cup of his Father's wrath, because wrath from God is just the utter opposite of everything he's ever known. I I can't be more emphatic about it, but I also can't explain it in a way that helps us really pull our minds around it. It is just the utter opposite thing to to who he is and and who he has been, even in his perfect human life, that he would experience anything other than the Father's good pleasure. Jesus Christ, the true God of true God, who took a perfect human nature and humanity into union with himself, who came and lived a perfect life, who has never been before God anything other than, as we read in the Gospel of Mark earlier in chapter 1 and chapter 9, behold, my beloved Son! with whom I am well pleased. He's never known anything but the Father's pleasure. He's now looking into the cup of wrath, which is just the most concentrated outpouring of the Father's displeasure, of his white-hot fury and hatred toward all things that are contrary to him, everything which is death and not life, everything which is unholy and unrighteous. He says, I can't even stand it. I can't even tolerate it. I must deal with it upon the cross. And Jesus, who's never known anything but love and pleasure, is anticipating and is preparing to have his human experience, as it were, turned utterly upside down and to embrace for us all of God's displeasure toward our disobedience. And again, it, we, 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 we fall short, but try to imagine this, okay? Okay? Jesus has never felt guilty before. Think about that. How often do you feel guilty? Weekly? Daily? How often do we have that feeling that we've done wrong and our conscience, right, begins to gnaw at us and to eat at us? The Psalms say our bones grow weak and weary, right? We 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 experience shame and it covers us like dirt and grime because we don't want to be exposed, right, in our wrongdoing, and very often that is the case, and we are humiliated and we are embarrassed and we feel like coming we try to avoid it we experience guilt all the time in our life as sinners as fallen men and women but try to understand that jesus He has never known that feeling in his humanity he has never known guilt he's never known the sullying dirtying ugh, just stain and grime of shame washing over him having fallen short of god's will He's never known anything but perfect peace in his conscience, perfect clarity as he prays and as he communes and as he worships his God and Father. He's never experienced any disruption like we have. He is he's purer and more innocent than untouched snow. And he's contemplating the reality that soon awaits that God will look on his son and call him sinner. That God will look on the innocent one and call him guilty. That that Shame that is due to us will be borne and heaped upon him. Try to understand. This is what he is contemplating. This is what, is what he is looking ahead toward. The innocent one would become the object of shame and ridicule. He would be marked and, and mocked by all as a guilty one, as a blasphemer, as a criminal, though he had done no wrong. It's like calling up, down, right? It's like calling... <laughs> um, Light, darkness, calling a brick of gold a piece of trash, just unthinkable, it's unimaginable that Jesus could be called and construed as anything other than beloved son. Yet the son was called sinner, that we could be called sons and daughters of God. This is what he's beginning to wrap his mind around as he prays to God in the garden. This is what is coming toward him. This is the cup of God's wrath that he will drink. And he asked, Lord this is a fate worse than death for me. This is what I can't imagine. This is the death of deaths, that I would be separate and alienated and experiencing a cut off from you, my God, who is life himself. If there is any way possible, he pleads, let this experience pass from me. Yet we know that this is the way it must be, and so does he, which is why he resolves to say, yet, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Your plan will go forward. The, the covenant to redeem a people for ourself that the Trinity has made before time even began, that plan will go forward. It will not be stopped. Jesus loves his Father, and because of that, even as he receives this task, this mission, he consents to obey his will. Jesus, in the weakness and the frailty of his perfect humanity, he remains faithful. We, in our weakness, in our humanity, like the disciples, we fail all the time in our weakness. Adam failed in the garden when things were perfect, right? The disciples fail in the garden when the Savior is right there present with them. Jesus doesn't fail. He says, Lord, yet not my will, but your will be done. We will do justice. We will save a people for ourselves. We will glorify our name to the end of the earth. It will be done. He resolves to march forward with this plan. And we see that this is an exchange, a wrestling that occurs not just once, not twice, but three times. And every time his resolve is is, is, is steeled and solidified, yes, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, we turn and immediately see the contrast of his disciples' failure to keep watch. Here Christ is in the garden, wrestling with the will of God, yet resolving to do it. And the disciples failing to heed His very simple word, to stay awake and watch. He comes to them once and finds them sleeping and says, could you not watch one hour? And then he tells them to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that right now in this time of weakness, Satan might not come and tempt you. Even in his weakness, he's encouraging them in their weakness. And he says, be careful. The spirit is willing. Sometimes we want to do things, right? But the flesh is weak. This is who we are as fallen men and women. We are unable in our own strength and our own power. obey we have been corrupted we have been made fallen and being sinful as we are we cannot lean on ourselves to accomplish these things this is why jesus is in the garden he says listen to my words watch and pray lest you fall into temptation and then he returns it says he went away in verse 39 praying the same words and again I, i i fail you to try to bring you into this scene And we've all probably wrestled with God before, and it's certainly nothing even close to this. But just imagine in the dead of night, the Son of God, the perfect man contemplating everything that awaits him. The pouring out of that cup of wrath upon him. His Father's displeasure. And he says time and time again, Lord, this is more than I can bear. This is something I would never want because I love you so much. I can't bear to be from you. I can't bear to be experiencing anything but your love in return. In wrestling again and again, take this cup, but yet not my will, but your will be done. Take this cup, but Lord, our plan will go forward. Take this cup, but I will obey. I will submit, and I will be that last Adam in the garden who doesn't falter, but will do your will. Time and time again, he's wrestling. He's saying the same words. He's praying the same prayer. And really, church, in this way, as Christ is going through this, as he is pouring out his heart, as he is sweating drops of blood and laying his face upon the earth and coming to terms with the reality of what's awaiting him as he gazes into the cup of God's wrath. Truly, in this way, as he looks ahead to the cross, it's almost as if his soul is crucified before his body is ever nailed to the tree. So much does he resolve, so much does he accept, so done is it to him that this will be the way it will go That he has come to terms fully, agreed to drink that cup of God's wrath, and though he will experience what he's about to experience, we have confidence that he will not falter. He will not fail. He will drink it down for us. Having seen the full extent of God's wrath as he gazed into the cup, and really, by extension, then seeing how terrible our sin is, seeing how much he would suffer for the very ones who were now sleeping on him, for all his people who would fail him and fall short. Christ sees it as clearly as it could be, and he says, even so, I will drink. Even so, I will march toward the cross, even if I go alone. Jesus has bowed himself to his Father's will the disciples have failed to keep the Father's will. They failed to heed the voice of the Son of God and as has been the case from Adam <laughs> to now, verse 41 tells us that after this, this all-nighter, the worst all-nighter ever experienced in the history of mankind in which the disciples faltered but Jesus stayed true and steadfast that upon that third time coming to them, Jesus says are you still sleeping? <laughs> Taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Christ has, through wrestling in the garden, in prayer, prepared himself to embrace, to step into that hour. And he says, here it is. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer, he is at hand. Judas and his band marching up the hill with clubs and swords like a slithering snake to arrest the innocent one. Christ has come to terms with, and seeing full well what awaited him, has not backed up a bit, but is pressing on toward the cross. And he tells the disciples, it's time now. The hour has come. I'm here to face the music. So Jesus goes, and he allows himself in the scene that we'll we'll read next week, to be embraced by Judas just as willingly as he would go to embrace the cross, a cross that would be covered. And the full outpouring of the wrath of God. A cross which meant a death far worse than any death that had been died. A cross that he would bear alone. And listen, in this, as we see the suffering he underwent, the sorrow that led him to say, death would be better than this grief that I'm dealing with. Sweating blood, weak and weary, and beside himself. As Jesus saw the cross, as he peered into What he would receive from his Father as his prayer to the Father went unanswered time and time again, and he knew this must be the way. Jesus saw the cross for exactly what it was, and he marched on anyway into the arms of Judas in order for his arms to be outstretched upon the cross. He resolved in the garden, in that moment, to obey his Father till the end in order to undo our disobedience, that we might become credited with his perfect record of righteousness before God. He obeyed in the garden in order to bring us back into that garden, right? On the basis of what he'd achieved for us forevermore. His prayer to his father, in that moment, listen, it went unanswered. God did not remove the cup from him so that we might call God our father having been redeemed and reconciled through his body and blood upon the cross. And now it gets better, all right? And now as our high priest and his every prayer for us as his people before God's throne, that prayer now, every one of them, because of that one prayer that was answered no, every other prayer for us is answered with a resounding Yes that Christ prays to his God and Father. He prays for us. This is he prayed for the disciples. This is he prayed for Peter in Luke's gospel. Satan's come to tempt you and to sift you like wheat, but don't worry, I've prayed for you that you may not fail. He prays for us when we are weak and failing. He stands in heaven daily to declare that we are his, constantly hitting refresh upon his finished work on the cross, advocating for us before God's holy throne, even as we sin and forgiving us. For those ongoing sins, on the basis of the fact that He has already borne them all away. He has already drank down to the dregs the cup of wrath. No more remains for us to face. And listen, this morning, all those who trust in Jesus, we can know with confidence that because of this moment of resolve and the cross to which it led, we can know with confidence that we'll never experience God's wrath toward us. Amen. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took the wrath so that we wouldn't have to. We would never know the fullness of God's displeasure toward our sin and suffer the judgment for it. And listen this morning. If you've never trusted in Christ to be your sin bearer, to be the one to have taken that wrath for you, this morning, he invites you. He invites the disobedient sinner who's lived a life of my will and my way to come now and receive all that he's accomplished in obeying the Father's will. He says, come, because there's two options. Either Jesus pays for our sins and has borne our wrath, or we have to. And he says, come. Come and drink of my grace. Come and receive my love freely given. Come and experience a covering and a forgiveness of all your sins and failing so that the cup that you drink is not a cup of wrath but a cup of grace that dips into a well that has no end. Come and receive Jesus. If that's you today, believe in him. Believe in him. Let his father become your father. And call upon him just as he did. And say, Abba. And come into a family that will never leave you, or fail you, or forsake you, that will last forever. Come into God's family today. Jesus obeyed his father so that he might become our Father. This is the good news of Gethsemane for us. And before we go, having, in whatever ways we could, beheld the seriousness of sin and the steadfastness of our Savior's love, let's ask the question, how then should we respond? Now that we've gazed upon him, where does the application come? And there's four points for us today to receive before we go. Number one, in light of the good news of Gethsemane. Number one, we should see prayer as a gift of grace. See prayer as a gift of grace. What do I mean? I mean that God hears our prayers because Christ's prayer was unheard. That's the whole basis of our prayers going anywhere, being received by a loving Father with an open ear because in this moment, Christ's prayer to have that cup removed was not answered, that we might be reconciled to God. We can pray because it wasn't answered. And even as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I was wrestling with this text and I freshly realized in a moment, I said, hey, I can call upon his father as my father. I need God's help. And right now in that moment, I can ask for it. I can pray to the God for whom all things are possible. And he'll hear me. And he delights that I come to him And he invites me to commune with him. In light of Gethsemane, would we see our life of prayer as a wonder, as a privilege, knowing that Jesus has purchased every one of our prayers to God with his precious blood? This week, and as we respond to these things, would we pray? (laughs) Oh man, like prayer is a gift we've been given to delight in not a duty that we have to, to just check off, not a duty that we have to attend to, but something God has given to us in grace. Number two, receive the care of Christ. The greatest sufferer can sympathize with all our lesser yet no less real suffering. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. You can read them during the week. And the point is that he can sympathize with us because we just can't sympathize with him. He's experienced far worse and far greater than we could ever know. Because of that, there's nothing in our realm of experience (laughs) that he's like, wow, man, I can't help you with that one. That's beyond me. I got no idea. I can't even imagine. No. He's undergone a depth of sorrow and sadness, of, of loneliness, of despair, of grief, of struggle with and sorrow over sin more than we ever He walked the path before him alone, and he became the man of sorrows so that we would never be alone in any sorrow that we face. This morning, if you're walking through a dark hour in life, truly, know that Jesus is with you. If you are his, he is with you. He is your high priest, and he prays for you. And he invites you to fall on your face, just as he did at his throne to find the grace and help you need right now. This morning, if you're in a dark hour, I just want to encourage you. Jesus is there with you. He's gone through the darker still, and he is present to be with you now to help you reach the end. Seek his grace. Seek his help. Seek prayer after the service. Seek to be cared for. Christ has care to give you. Third, how should we respond to Gethsemane? Number three, hate your sin. Hate your sin. This text, it shows us how worthy of hatred our sin is. Look at how Christ was grieved. He was sorrowful unto death. He was greatly distressed. He was troubled. He was weak, and he was laid low. He was undone because he saw how sinful our sin is, and he saw what it deserved in the cross. Wrap your mind just a little bit further around the kind of horror our sin deserved when we see how Christ responded to it, how he anticipated how he received that foretaste of the cross and how it met his soul in anguish. Listen, are are you coddling any sins in your life, treating them as less serious than they ought to be? Respond to Gethsemane by resolving and by, by asking the question, why would we, how could we continue to do what made our Savior sorrowful unto death? Would we turn, would we repent, would Gethsemane convict us not to seek fleeting joy in what brought our Savior such sorrow? Hate your sin. But that's not the last word. <laughs> because number four, love the Savior. In response to Gethsemane, we ought to hate our sin, but even more than that, we ought to love the Savior. Because we can't just empty ourselves of the bad, right? <laughs> we Uh, Our heart, right? It it just can't handle a vacuum. (laughs) We must be filled with the good. And what's the good? What's the greatest? That's the love of Christ for us. The depth of his love for us was even greater, church, than the sorrow he had over our sin. He was so moved by his great love that he went to the cross for us, seeing full well, knowing full well what would await him. He stepped into it willingly being so moved then by his great love for us, would we be moved to go to the cross ourselves, crucifying and putting to death the deeds of our flesh that we might continue to delve into depth after depth of the new life he's won for us, turning away from the old, nailing it to the cross, and living more and more now, the way that we'll be living when we return to the garden in full and we walk face to face with Jesus Christ. Oh, church. Christ obeyed in the garden to bring us back to it again. He became a man sorrowful unto death so that our cups would be overflowing with joy in life in him. What grace, what love, and what a Savior we've beheld this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that though we had failed to keep the Father's will, you bowed before it, you submitted to it, and you finished your course perfectly you embraced the cross that we deserve you took the cup that was meant for us and you drank it down that we might not know wrath but grace that we might not be alien and separate but that we might be sons and daughters of your father and call him our father we thank you that you embraced all the sorrow that was due our sin that we might be filled with your joy unending we ask that you would be glorified in us as we celebrate your great grace to us